Plan your work and work your plan. For many athletes, words like these are scripture. Permanent signposts lining the long road to success. The very act of pursuing a career in sports gives a sense of control, a sense of safety. Just stick to the plan, good things will follow. That is, until life hits you. The kind of life that happens when you're making other plans. Devastating setbacks, seemingly mundane moments. When things change unexpectedly and catch you without looking. Then the first question becomes, what's your next play? From the Players' Tribune, I'm former National Hockey League goaltender Corey Hirsch. And I'm psychiatrist Dr. Diane McIntosh. Welcome to Blindsided. Mental health, sports, and life. This episode contains content that may be difficult to hear. Please check the show notes for more information. Listener discretion is advised. I feel like I was trying to find a space where nobody was going to see me. I'm about to out myself and I can't stop this feeling of heart attack or panic or I didn't know what the hell is happening. So... You know, I'm, 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 I'm running past our team trainers. I'm running past a couple of teammates that are getting treatment in the back, pass out on the ground and just like I'm trying to remove whatever the blockage is within my windpipe, nothing there. And I feel like I'm having cardiac arrest and I can't get oxygen to my brain. And I mean, that was one of the scarier moments in my life because I didn't know what the hell was going on. I thought I was dying. On this episode of Blindsided, we welcome Kevin Love. Kevin is an NBA player with the Cleveland Cavaliers. He won an NBA championship in 2016 and has been open about his mental health struggles. His article in the Players' Tribune, Everyone is Going Through Something, hit a chord. It helped a lot of people and athletes to open up. Kevin talks about a family history of mental illness, self-medicating with alcohol, and the paranoid feelings he had after experiencing a panic attack in front of thousands at an actual NBA regular season game. It's tough, honest, and left me feeling thankful for his courage to open up. Here's Kevin Love on Blindsided. In my house, I mean, listen, there was, there was a lot of love in my house. I think... Um, you know, I was definitely groomed to be an athlete. I think the writing was on the wall pretty early on. I had an older brother uh, who helped me in that pursuit and just in that love of basketball because he was the one, Colin is his name, he's two years my senior. He was the one who, you know, kind of got me into basketball, got me into my love for it. My dad had played in the NBA in the early 70s, was an All-American in the late 60s out of University of Oregon. And then he grew up in Southern California, really primarily L.A., where he was a, a two-time All-American in high school. So it was in my blood. I played up with my brother a couple of grades. He was into organized basketball very early on. Um, so that's where that love came from. And honestly, um, that was just my life. I think in all professional athletes, I feel like, especially where I grew up, I was kind of just a one-track mind. I mean, so many people have range now and have, you know, problem solved from different areas within their lives. But for me, it was really basketball, basketball, basketball. Um, and I have a younger sister, Emily, who's 
five years younger than I am, so I got to play big brother. Uh, I got to play middle child, and I certainly suffer from middle child syndrome as well. Always having to prove myself, always wanting to go out there and uh, just try to get acceptance and love and just, uh, you know, be a part of uh, not only my family, but, you know, kind of supplement myself into my friend group in a major way. So I think that that basketball gave me a lot of confidence early on. And then my mother just brought it all together. So that was, uh, she was a nurse. Uh, my dad worked various jobs, including being in the NBA as well. But my mom was a nurse. My um, my sister, like I mentioned, five years younger than I am. She was in needle and nail uh, intensive, intensive care, excuse me. So she was a preemie baby. Uh, she was very... Uh, very small when she was born. So I think we all uh, took care of the baby and the family. And my mom remained a nurse uh, throughout her time when I was growing up. It's interesting that you mentioned that your brother was the driving force, or it sounded like, by the way you talked about, it was the driving force behind basketball. But here was your dad, who's an NBA player. How did he influence you in that respect? Uh, in a major way, uh, he was, he was, uh, my dad, Stan was the one who put the ball in my hands from a, a very early age and somebody who I looked up to. I mean, he introduced me to the, the greats of the game, uh, going all the way back to the 50s, 60s, his era, 70s, all the way up through 80s and 90s. And the mid 80s is when it really took off and it was bird versus magic. And the game was never the same after that. So I, I got really introduced to to basketball through him. Um, you know, we had the old VHS tapes, we had the superstar tapes of all the players from pretty much every era that, um, you know, garnered a lot of respect, a lot of Hall of Fame players, and then just people that he knew and would introduce me to, put me on the phone with. I mean, I was named after one of the greatest players of all time in Wes Unseld, who just passed uh, this last year. But you know, the Kevin Wesley love, the middle name came from uh, West Unsell. My dad was drafted by the Bullets in 1971, uh, ninth overall, and actually got to play with West Unsell. And, you know, I guess the name is, is pretty fitting because I've I actually acquired some of, uh, I guess, his talents uh, through sheer, I guess, serendipity in that way. But uh, a lot of outlets, a lot of rebounds and just using my size to throw around my weight and, you know, be super effective. But I think my dad just, again, always had me around the game, always had me chasing the game. And I think very hard on me early, but once he realized I was a self-starter, you know, he kind of backed off a bit, not, he always showed up. He always had the camera with him, was always around. But I think once he saw that I was driving myself and I wanted a lot out of this game that he was like, okay, I'm going to impart my wisdom and, and what I see throughout different times, but more so more often than not, he just kind of, um, I guess, faded, faded to the back when it came to me actually going out there and playing on the court. It sounds like Kevin, you have, well, it doesn't sound like you have an incredibly successful driven family, very high achievers. Your dad, your aunt, I understand was a an incredible triathlete, but also successful on the the music front with your uncle being one of the founding members of the Beach Boys. Was there ever a, a, a sense of expectation with with that? Did you ever feel like you were in anyone's shadow as you're coming up? Uh, I wouldn't say in anybody's shadow, but I think there was definitely an expectation. I think that's where 
a lot of my anxieties came from. Um, and it wasn't just expectation from my family or, you know, being in this small bubble growing up in uh, right outside of Portland, Oregon and in, in Lake Oswego, Oregon. Uh, it was also the expectation that I, I put on myself. I knew that while we did live in Lake Oswego, we weren't as financially stable as, as most people thought. I think if you went there and you know, kind of saw and, and, and could see what Lake Oswego still is today, it's a, a pretty affluent place. It's a place um, you know, that I was very fortunate to grow up in. We you know, have great sports programs. We have great public schools in Oregon in general. So I was very blessed in that respect, but we were very lucky to have bought our home when we did in the early 90s, we I had two parents that grinded and, you know, put put food on the table. And, hey, we were able to, to in some ways, cutting corners, keep our keep ourselves there. But I think for me, it was, you know, just seeing the, the you know, my my dad go through hardships, my mom, you know, certain nights. Um, you know, having to go back uh, to school to get a nursing license and, you know, to help, you know, just that that bottom line of, of what we needed to, to stay in Lake Oswego and have me achieve my dream. So I think that they they definitely sacrificed a lot, but I definitely put a lot of pressure on myself to like any kid in my position would to to just want to help their family and understand that, uh, you know, money can become a definitely a, a major driving force at the same time, a, a major issue. And I think expectation in every sense of the word can be something that gives yourself a, a lot of anxiety. And I think I attach myself to productivity in, in a positive way, but also if I wasn't performing, then I wasn't adding value to the world. I wasn't adding value to my family. So that was a vicious cycle where my anxiety was, was, high, high level. This is before I exposed it, before I admitted that, you know, I was really going through something at, you know, an age as early as I can remember. But once I, that expectation continued to add up, I really got in some, some dark moments where I probably scared myself. And for those very close to me, maybe not even my best friends, maybe not even my family, but, you know, some of those that I, I let in, however small, uh, there were some scary moments. And, you know, I look back on that, that made me part of who I am, but I truly feel like, you know, I wish I would have had some sort of resources or somebody to, to help me out throughout that time, because, you know, I think my overall life satisfaction and looking back and connecting the dots, I wish that I would have enjoyed the process more leading all the way up to when I initially decided I, I, I need to get some help. Kevin, we use words like depression and anxiety, but it, it really does mean different things for different people. So for you, what does anxiety mean? And when do you first remember in, and I know retrospectively, because at the time, I'm sure you didn't go, hmm, this is anxiety. But when you look back, when do you first remember that that started to seep into your life? I've always had it. I still have it now. I live with it today. Um, you know, I'm on medication. I do therapy twice a week. I have two different therapists. I'm so fortunate to be able to afford that. I That is not lost on me that not many people have those resources or have the, the you know, financial security or are able to, to pay for something like that. So I'm, I'm extremely blessed in that respect again. 
but this has always just been been a part of me. And, um, and what does it mean for you when you use that word? What does anxiety mean, if you don't mind sharing? Because it really does mean different things for different people. For me, it's it's I mean, it's a number of different things, but it's always just been a low level threat. I've re- I wrote this before that it's always a low level threat that something can go wrong at any time. Um, and it's, it's primitive, right? It's like that flight or fight response, but it just lives within you all the time. It just continues to, to weigh on you, to eat at you. And it's, it's, you know, I say both anxiety and depression, which, you know, is, I think it's all an accumulation, but it's like wearing a weighted vest all the time. And that's something that, listen, with, with my anxiety, I think it was, both good and bad. And I think there's good and bad in all of it. I mean, I've had to change my relationship with my anxiety, but I think, you know, early on, while there was some hindrance in in having it be a part of me, it was also a driving force. It was also, you know, fuel that, hey, maybe I can achieve myself out of this, which is a wrong way of thinking. But uh, early on, I was thinking, okay, whether I'm you know, feeling so much stress on me and then more anxiety I'm putting on myself with expectation, with just overall life and then getting very dark for weeks and sometimes even months at a time, like, oh, I'll just achieve myself out of this. So I use that anxiety and that fuel and that energy to just, okay, I can, I can get myself out of it if I, if I just do this. But again, that's a, that's an energy suck and an energy drain in itself. And um, again, that's not a, a, a truly a life to live, especially when you're not only compartmentalizing it, but but hiding it from everybody. Well, and that was going to be my question is, you know, I hid mine, right? I, I hid it from everybody because I didn't want anybody to know um, the stigma, everything. You're you're worried about your coaches. You're worried about your GM. What are people going to think? Are they going to, am I just not even going to, are they not even going to give me a chance, right? Do you, because you'd be like, would they take the healthy person or whatever? What was the driving force behind hiding it? And what were, you know, some of the things like, man, I, I can remember making so many excuses and I, I wouldn't call them lies because I was trying to survive but I was late for meetings, late for practice, late for a lot of different things. Was there any particular times or things like that you can remember where you just had to hide it and you were going to do anything you could do it? I mean, I, I thank you for sharing that, by the way, even, even my, some of my highest moments. I mean, there's obviously times when, you know, life is coming at you and, and you're kind of, all your core pillars or core competencies are all kind of getting knocked down. I think that's what's led me to be right here and now. But I, I think you, you said it at, at even at the peak of my life and performance, I never wanted people to know that I was dealing with this because, again, it's it's family, it's livelihood, it's teammates, coaches. Are they going to be able to trust me? What are they going to think about me? You know, this you know, being an athlete is so short lived, you're burning the the candle at both ends. So, and again, basketball, as I mentioned earlier, was, was always my first love. So I thought, man, I gotta, I gotta hide this. I gotta do whatever I can to, you know, to make sure that, that, that I'm healthy, not only physically, but, but mentally. So I think that's what, what got me to, to really sharing it and having a, a very, 
uh, public mental health episode. But I think early on, too, it was just that idea of, I guess, like masculinity to me early on. I think especially young men have, you know, a problem uh, or a tough time, I should say, being vulnerable, uh, speaking their truth. And that was no different than what I had growing up. Like I would act out and it would be better, better them than me type of feeling where I might put my pain onto them, not knowing that, you know, that person that I was hurting uh, was going to get hurt by, but, but so was I, I was hurting myself at the same time. Like I would, I would just, you know, act out, lash out. But I think kind of what you're saying is I, I wouldn't necessarily, I'd always be pretty punctual. I always worked hard, but I always had a, a ability to remove myself from these situations. I always would say it, it's like taking a sick day when you're, you don't want to go to school. Right. I just, I took a lot of those, but it was really like DNP mental health. Right. I just I used those sick days as a way to to recharge when I just couldn't keep up with playing this character that was Kevin Love. I just wanted to to feel right within myself, right within my brain. And that just was not the case. I think fake facades were very hard to, to keep up and extremely draining. And that's what I was putting out there into the world. Did anyone in your family try and help you when you were younger or see, or did everyone try to turn a blind eye? I hit it like, yeah, best, best I could. I mean, listen, my, my sister went through the, a lot of the same stuff. I think, you know, my, my father as well. Um, he was, a not unlike me who liked to stay in the bed <laughs> for, for a while. But, um, yeah, I think the, somewhere in the love gene, it, it just, you know, has kind of spread a bit, but no, I don't think, I think they, they saw me, you know, and how I let out my emotions on the basketball court and just figured that I was I was OK. Kevin, you talked about growing up in a house with a whole lot of love, but you also had a whole lot of mental illness along with all the achievement going on. Uh, when I think about your your uncle Mike, the Beach Boys and, and cousins with the Wilson. So I think Brian Wilson would be your second cousin. Yep. I wonder whether or not while you're having some of these experiences, and especially when you have the in-your-face horrible experience of having a panic attack, that you had any thought to, where is this going, given Brian's experience with, with psychosis, with schizophrenia? Was that ever a fear for you? And did that play any role in how much you were open about what you were going through? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm... You know, I grew up hearing all those all those stories, and you know, it's funny because on the other side of that, there's my uncle who's done TM and tra transcendental meditation now for I I want to say maybe 50, 50 plus years now. So this guy is meditating twice a day. He's finding himself. He's he's going to everywhere in the world to to you know, better himself with, with meditation and the Maharishi. And I mean, this goes all the way back to the sixties. So, you know, in, in seeing Brian's struggles, yeah. I mean, that was uh, something that I was very well aware of uh, as well as people taking advantage of that and, you know, trying to, 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 you know, take him for a ride and saying that, Oh, I'm, I'm going to do this for you. So it was, Again, I think it was distrust uh, within, you know, his his system and his surroundings as well. But Brian, yeah, was somebody that 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 really struggled. Another 
person in the family that, I mean, he was in bed for, it seemed like, you know, years and, um, you know, definitely, definitely empathize with that struggle. You know, I was naive and young to even think that it would go there, but, you know, I think the, the darkness definitely clouded my, my way of thinking regardless, but I I don't know if I ever felt that it was going to go there, but at the same time, I didn't understand or, you know, why I was feeling the way that I was feeling. Diane, I noticed that you often ask people about their family history of mental illness. Why is that? Understanding someone's family history about mental illness is really important. And one of the main reasons is because some mental illnesses have a strong genetic component. And what that means is that genes related to that mental illness that cause that mental illness are passed down from one generation to the next. Now, it's important to note that no mental illness is 100% genetic. An example of a genetic illness, something that's 100% genetic, is like Huntington's disease. It's a neurological disorder. And if you get the Huntington's disease gene, you're going to get Huntington's disease. So while there are no mental illnesses that are 100% genetic, some are more genetic than others. That's like ADHD or bipolar disorder. And that means that several genes are transferred together, and they increase the risk of that individual developing an illness. So what would be the odds of somebody that has a parent with a history of mental illness? What would be the odds of them or their child actually getting something similar with mental health? Well, it depends on the disorder. So bipolar disorder, ADHD, those are our most heritable psychiatric illnesses. The real value to understanding this for me is the fact that If I meet a patient who has a strong family history, that helps me to make that diagnosis more rapidly and more accurately. And you may think, well, you're a psychiatrist, that's your job, and wonder why it's difficult to make a diagnosis sometimes. But if you think about something like bipolar disorder, people who have bipolar disorder spend most of their time ill being depressed. So it's very commonly misdiagnosed as being depression. But if I understand there's a family history, it helps me to be more confident in my diagnosis of bipolar disorder rather than depression, and that helps me make the best treatment choice sooner. But it's not that your child is guaranteed to get a mental health issue just because you have one doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to get one either. Absolutely not. So no mental illness is 100% genetic, which means that there's a number of different reasons why someone becomes mentally ill, and genes are just one piece of that puzzle. Like many kids... Kevin kept the feelings to himself. He couldn't find the words to explain how he was feeling. A way to say I'm experiencing something dark. And for Kevin, those experiences started early. Yeah, I think those experiences probably first happened in my early teens. I can kind of remember, um, I guess, getting into, I think the sweet spot for me was probably 15 years old. Um, being a freshman in high school and just not understanding why I did not want to get out of bed. I did not want to stop staring at the ceiling for hours at a time. I didn't want to be productive in school. The only thing that I wanted to do where I felt like I could, you know, be free and something I was good at and bring value to the world was actually, you know, doing what I wanted to be my job and my, my love, which was basketball. And I've seen it a lot of times and I, excuse me, felt it a lot of times where, and I said it earlier, like am I, in 
having the game taken away from me for any reason, but for, for injury, you know, which is probably the scariest thing for an athlete, because again, we want to have that longevity. We want to play for as long as we can. So long as we still have the passion and love for it. When the game was taken away from me at any point in my career until I was about 27, 28 years old, I just felt like, again, I wasn't bringing any value to the world. So when that negative self-talk comes in on top of, you know, not even having the opportunity to go out there and perform, I just, I, I just didn't see my, I had that imposter syndrome or imposter theory where I just didn't feel right in my body, didn't feel right within my mind and just had nobody to talk to. I didn't have the language. I didn't have, um, anywhere to go. I didn't have anything that I learned in school that that would have been applicable to me growing my mind or, or you know, making sure that I was going to be okay. So those those moments are, are scary because, you know, the negative self-talk, I think, you know, you come to a point where, you know, some of those thoughts can be really scary and some of those thoughts can be suicidal and some of those thoughts can be, you know, why am I here? You know what? I have no purpose. You know, I have no love in my life. Everybody hates me. I bring nothing to this world. And, you know, it's just a black cloud uh, around you all the time. So I've, I've, I've been to that, that place a lot. And it's, it's, again, it's like carrying around a, a weighted vest and a, a cloud that just won't stop, you know, pouring rain on you all the time. Kevin, one of the things that happens for many people when they're really depressed is that their brain starts to lie to them. Yeah. You're hopeless. You're useless. You're no good to anyone. And it's again and again and again till it just becomes the reality. And it sounds like you've been there too many times. I'm I'm very sorry to hear that. But it sounds like you've also had what is very common when you're in that place, which is maybe this life isn't worth living. Maybe I don't want to go on anymore. When you've had those experiences, well, can you talk a little bit about it and how you made your way through that? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the thing that was really hurting me too was looking in the rearview mirror and saying, you know, I think depression has that unique ability to rob you of, you know, moments when you should be happiest and proudest, <laughs> uh, especially within my childhood or feeling any sense of accomplishment. I'm not, I'm not even talking about just, you know, on the field of play. I'm talking about within relationships, within, you know, my, my family, just bringing, you know, whatever value within, you know, those relationships that are supposed to make me happy. You know, it's like uh, you think you're the worst person in the world. And when, when you get to that, that point, yeah, of course, you start thinking to yourself, you know, what kind of life is this to live? And how can I stop the pain? How can I stop it now, right now? I don't want to wait anymore. I can't, I can't do another day of this. I can't do another week of this. God, what is it going to look like a month from now? So I think that's when it gets scary is like you, you, you know, just want to take I mean, honestly, you want to make it easier on yourself. And in a way that's that in your brain, when it's playing tricks on you, you, you feel like that's the easiest route is just, I can just end the pain here and now. And you're acting 
I mean, very selfish in that, right? But you, you, you just want the pain to subside. You want the pain to alleviate and you just want it to be, you know, gone. I'm going to argue with you on, on one point that you just said, Kevin, because to me, you know, people often say it's selfish. Suicide is selfish. It is not selfish. It is what you just said. That's what I, a depressed person would say. Exactly. So <laughs> we can talk later. It is, it is a situation of, I have to stop this pain. And, you know, the agony and Corey has had this experience personally with the loss of his girlfriend is that when people end their life, they often are thinking, everyone needs me out of this life. Everyone will be better off without me. Not just me, I won't have this pain, but the people who love me won't have it anymore either. And, and they'll just go on with their lives. And as you know well, people don't go on with their lives. They, they have that loss forever. So tell me, if you would, how you endured those times, because you're here with us now, and it sounds like you've had more than just a couple of times when you've been in that very, very dark hole. How did you manage to continue? Yeah, I mean, to, I, think, to move I on? think every time has been different. Again, I, I, I didn't start seeing a therapist until I, you know, was in my late 20s. This is, you know, I came into even the MBA at, at 19 years old. And, you know, I was, I had a lot of bad habits. I had a lot of uh, growing up to do. I, you know, I kind of had to, you know, be nurtured and, and coddled by different people when I, when I came in, because I didn't know what this professional setting was. I didn't know what it was like to be away from my family for at least seven, eight months out of the year. Um, I didn't know anybody in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where I was playing my, my first six years in, in the NBA. So, you know, I think it, there was obviously some excitement in in the newness of it all, but in in dragging myself out of each and every scenario, I don't know. It's 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 hard to point a finger on what what really got me out of it because I think you know there's there's definitely levels to all of it, but I, I just. I guess I was just thinking to myself if, you know, I, I used to have these moments when I was young where I feel like I'd, I'd look up in the sky and like it would be like euphoric, like the, the clouds would part and things would feel so good. And I'm like, why? How do I not have that anymore? Where is that? Like, am I going to feel that again? How can I make the steps in the right direction to to feel that again? But I think each, each, each time has been... Um, unique in its own right it's it's hard for me to say what what you know drove me out of those times because i think in in one of my my worst times was when you know i it got a lot worse before it got better was you know after november 5th of 2017 when i had a very public episode mental health episode it was after that where i said okay family, friends, you know, business, relations, any relationships and, and basketball, uh, you know, all this stuff, all these pillars, everything was like totally in disarray. Everything was falling. Everybody, everything was terrible. And I finally got up the, the courage. I, I again, looked in the mirror, wasn't passing the mirror test and thought, okay, everything's checked out. What just happened? You know, I'm going into a very, very dark place. What do I need to do? So that was the first time that I actually went to, to, to therapy and was proactive with it. But I think 
more than anything, it was just like that just endure mentality that I, that I had. And I think a very, a thing that I did that, that was not healthy was, and what I've learned is you can't compare grief. Like I would compare grief and say, who am I to feel this way? I'm, I'm, you know, living this dream and, you know, I might be hurt, but I'm healthy. You know what I mean? Like I, you know, my body is, is, you know, I might have an injury or something, but overall, you know, I'm, I'm, I have all these things going on in my brain, but I'm, I'm healthy. So I just kept, I guess, telling myself that. And while it was like a back backhanded compliment for, for my mental space, I thought to myself, just endure. And, you know, there's a lot of people that, that have it worse, but what I was doing was withholding compassion uh, really for myself. And I think I always say like, we can't, we compare grief. I think it's super unhealthy. And I don't, I have said it before. I don't think anybody benefits from, from withholding compassion, but just finally, again, to answer your question, I think it varied each and every time, but more than anything, it's, it's hard to point a finger on it because most of the time I would just be in bed in a, in a dark room, uh, just trying to get to the next day and, you know, wake up and say, okay, you know, uh, just get through it. Just endure. Diane, I'm, I'm going to be honest right now. Like this is, uh, we've done a bunch of these and like, I'm almost in tears sitting over here because this story is just so similar. And I feel like I'm gone back to this, that place, like in my head and I'm sweating. But you know, like it doesn't matter if it's basketball or football or hockey or tennis. Like it doesn't matter if it's a lawyer, a const- like it's all the same, right? Like we're all connected together, and, and mental health is all the same. I just see so many similarities: the imposter syndrome, you know, the masculinity, the you know, acting it like you just everything's on fire and you'll do anything to put it out. Um, but there's just the, there's so much there. But also killer mustache your dad had, dude. Yeah, you had a that, great was, that, was cool. that was good handlebars. <laughs> Very nice. I'm not letting you sequitur into that because I want to ask something that applies to both of you, Corey, if I can yeah. for just a minute. Because you both were away from home very young. Right. So you're already and I think, Kevin, you described it so well as, you know, 19. Here you are. Big leagues. It's all new. You're already vulnerable because you're so young. Your brains aren't mature but you also have the vulnerability of mental illness on top of that. And I hear you both using terms at different times. I, you know, I wasn't strong enough or I wasn't courageous or I finally gained the courage. And I don't think, and this is, I guess, the evil of depression and, and anxiety, you don't cut each other, cut yourselves any slack at that time, even now, looking back at it. It's just, I had a job to do. I was there. I didn't deserve to have the to use those words or to complain at that time. But I want you to think about your your young self and think about what you would say to a young person at going through the same thing from from your vantage point now. I, I always say that, you know, having experienced it and understanding how um even just seeing last week, we did a uh, really cool event and we've been working on something for, with an education program with uh, my fund. And it's just you know, social, emotional learning. And, you know, they've done an amazing job of, of, of putting together and, and modeling vulnerability. And I, I, 
wish somebody would have told me at, at, you know, 15 years old, I mentioned that earlier, that was the time when I first, I think had my, my, a lengthy, you know, bout of, of depression and, and, and darkness. And I just, I've learned that nothing haunts us like, like the things we don't say. Uh, you got to speak your truth. I think you disarm people when uh, you do that and you say, you can't use me against me. You know what I mean? It's like, this is what you get. And, you know, I'm fine with having, you know, uh, uh, I don't want to have that that set mindset. I want to have a growth mindset. I want to be somebody who can use this and channel it um, you know, as, as somewhat of a, a superpower, but I, I, I wish somebody, I, I had the resources at, at, at that age to, you know, really be able to, to, to speak about it. Corey, how would it have been different for you if you had been able to talk about some of the, the craziness that was going on in your head, your mental anguish when you were a teenager? Well, I'll be honest. I would have never ended up attempting to take my own life. If I'd have learned things about mental health in high school, middle school, wherever it may be, or it was open in my family, um, I would have never gone through what I had gone through. Um, you know, the embarrassment, the shame, all those things, keeping them to myself, not knowing what was going on in my brain. And this is where I think we need to educate our kids in school about mental health. When things happened to me, when I struggled with depression, OCD, and anxiety. If I'd have known what it was or had been educated on it, I'd have been able to see a therapist the next day. I would have been just like a doctor. I would have gone to the to a therapist and said, hey, this is what's happening to me. Uh, can you explain this and can we fix it? Instead, I hide for three years. I end up making an attempt at my own life because I don't know what's going on with my brain. I think I'm crazy. I think I'm going insane. And it didn't have to be that way. If I'd only been educated on mental health in school, I would have never gone through that. How do you think that kind of ability to speak openly about what was going on, how would that have changed the locker room? Um, well, for me, it dropped a 747 off my back. But as for the locker room, uh, things are getting better now, but back then you would have never said anything. And what even what Kevin's going through, even today, people look at you like you're weak. And I'll say this, Diane, I was struggling with mental health. I made a National Hockey League team. Not only did I make a National Hockey League team, I made the NHL All-Rookie team. Now, mental health is like everything else. You can't walk around with a broken leg for three years and just say, ah, it's not broken or it's not happening. And eventually you have to deal with it. And eventually, because I didn't deal with it, it did come back to haunt me. But in the same sense, I was a better player after I got treated. While I was struggling to make the NHL, I didn't eat properly. I couldn't train properly. I was tough to be a good teammate. After when I was healthy, I was training properly. I was eating properly. And again, I was a better teammate and a better player. But because, you know, back when this was going on with me, there was such a stigma, you know, I ended up being just labeled as a, as a guy that was a depth guy on, on, you know, in the organization. So that's where things need to change because people that have gone through what, I've gone through or even something else, people that have gone through cancer or anything that are professional athletes, they're stronger than somebody that hasn't. Kevin continued to hide his feelings, all while playing basketball at the highest level. But on November 5th, 2017, it all came to a head. 
Yeah, I mean, that was uh, like a real, like I said earlier, I always had places to go or remove myself when it got to that point. So I think that the panic wasn't even near where it was when I was about to have this moment in front of 23,000 people. Um, let alone, again, removing myself, going back to the locker room, like trying to, whatever I was trying to find. And I, I, I feel like I was trying to find a space where nobody was going to see me. I'm about to out myself and I can't stop this feeling of heart attack or panic or I didn't know what the hell is happening. So, you know, I'm, 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 I'm running past our team trainers. I'm running past a couple of teammates that are getting treatment in the back. And this is right after halftime. So I'm, I'm just, you know, going back to our head athletic trainer, Steve Spiro's room. And I just fall out, pass out on the ground and just like, I'm trying to remove whatever the blockage is within my windpipe, nothing there. I mean, that was one of the scarier moments in my life because I didn't know what the hell was going on. I thought I was dying. And I think the fact that it was so public, I was so ashamed. And I just, I didn't want to make eye contact with anybody after that. I'm having to go back into work. And, you know, shortly thereafter, I'm, I'm, uh, at the Cleveland clinic and they run all these tests, everything checks out. So I'm like, what the fuck? Just what, what is going Everything's clear. Like what, what is going on? So, you know, I'm having to see a therapist for the first time and I'm, I'm like, therapists have the same problems I have, but like I was, because it was so, such a awful, scary moment in my life i thought i i got to do whatever i can to to get to get myself right and honestly it got a lot uh, it got worse before um it got better but i think a major therapeutic moment for me something i always do is i i write stuff down i journal i just get it out all on paper because again i'm i'm, I'm visual and my mind works that way is when i when i pen that open letter and, and shared this experience um and just saw the support and the the you know i always say like we're tribal tribal beings like there was a major tribe around this with people that either experienced it in their first themselves or within a family member or a friend and i thought wow there's a there's like a real community out here that is is like special and down to support each other and and makes you feel like you're you're on the winning side of history. You know, it's, it's, I think something that that acceptance is, is, has lessened my anxiety in a way to feel like I'm, I'm part of something bigger than myself. And I think everybody's looking for, uh, you know, looking for that at, at one point or another. When someone's suffering, like you were suffering, they suffer alone so often. And you actually labeling panic and saying the word, how hard it was to come back to work. You didn't just have to come back to work to, you know, the other people around the water cooler. 20 odd thousand people saw that happen and went, what the heck? What's going on? Where's he going? Exactly. Where's he going? What's going on? Then all of your, your, your colleagues, the trainers, you know, your teammates, everyone is reacting to this. That's the power of your voice here. Thank you for saying that because it's Absolutely. so hard to come back after something like that. And let me, you know what it was like too. It's, you know, when you're young and you're in the classroom and you kind of look over and you catch a couple people or a few people 
looking at you, but they're laughing. They're not actually talking about you. It has nothing to do with you. But then you're like full sweat. What did I do? Why are they laughing at me? Like, this is going to be such an embarrassing moment that I'm going to remember the last, rest of my life. Like every time I walked by and I kept my head down and it was kind of, it was like whispers or something. I'm like, they're talking about me. They're talking about, they can't trust me or, or this guy's, you know, who, you know, this guy left the game. Who the, who does he think he, you know, I, I don't know. I was making up so much stuff, uh, such a different narrative in my mind. Self-stigma, Kevin. Uh, yeah, you, we worry was. about stigma out there, but you were stigmatizing yourself yeah. through that. I, that was a, something I had to to definitely go through to go grow through, I guess I could say. You're the first person <laughs> I've met that had a meltdown in front of their teams like I did. So you're not, I did too. I did the same thing. Um, and I won't get into the story, but, um, you know, we had to have an emergency team meeting and I had my head in my hands in the corner while they're like, what's wrong with Hershey? And we're not going to tell the media anything. And the other goalie had to start, right? Oh, I never interject. I'm sorry to to break that. No, you go ahead. No, this I'm, is I'm about piggybacking you, on that. I want to add to it because we had a team meeting, but I never exposed it to the team. I wasn't ready yet. Yeah, me neither. So we had a team meeting and the whole team turned on me. And I'm looking, I'm looking like, how do I not, how do I get out of this? But I, I'm not there yet. So alone. Yeah. And so like, again, panic, but I just have to stand there and they're like, what is going on? What's wrong? And I'm looking like, who is going to help me out of this? And it, it, I had broken my hand like a couple games after. So then I had the game taken away from me. This is right after the team, uh, you know, had, had turned on me because I just was not talking. I just went into my shell mm -hmm. and, you know, I had to remove myself from, from another game for similar reasons. And it was just, it was just all bad. That, that, that moment in time still gives me, I shouldn't say nightmares, but it still gives me just a really bad taste in my mouth. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it was a learning experience for me to not, not, I shouldn't say judge somebody by appearance, but you really, you really truly don't know what somebody is experiencing in any moment. Like you, you, you have to be empathetic to, cause you can't, you can't, uh, I guess, argue, argue feelings. Cause I think that one of the biggest things was like, Oh, we all go through stuff. It's like, no, like, no, please understand that this, like, I'm not okay. I'm not okay. I had uh, probably half of my teammates try to get me traded, right? Like they went to the general manager and they were like, get rid of this guy. He's a bad guy. But I did have some a couple guys that were very supportive and were good to me. They just didn't understand it. But it, there's just so many similarities in the story. I remember sitting on the bus after that happened and just my head in my hands. And as my teammates walked by, I was like, man, I just threw my NHL career away. But you know what, Kevin? That day I saved my own life. So I look at it a little bit like you do. I, I have some shame and regret about it, but I also look at it like, that's why I'm here today. That's why I'm doing this. And and I hope that you can look at this too, like this. Um, and before we even go, I'm, I'm so sorry for what you went through because I know what that feels like. And uh, it's the, I'm going to, it's the fucking worst. I mean, I, we, you know, we can only connect 
the job, I mean, the, I say this because of Steve Jobs, but connect the dots looking back. Like I'm, I'm thankful in so many ways and grateful in so many ways that I, I still, you know, have my relationship with this, but I, I'm thankful I'd gone through it. But I just wish I could go back and just enjoy it more. Yeah. Do you ever feel that way? A thousand percent. And I had a therapist, of course, like where I'll be therapy for the rest of my life. And he asked me, are you proud of everything you accomplished? And yeah. Kevin, I couldn't answer him. I couldn't, I couldn't answer him. And that's what I'm working on today. And you I know what it is too? Yeah. yeah, no, me too. I, I have shame in thinking to myself, you know, I should have done more. I haven't done enough. Like, Every you day. know, it's like massacre, like... I dangle the carrot. I always say this, like right outside of what I consider success. And, you know, it's like, <laughs> to me, I'm like, Oh, it's the NBA 75th year. They're going to do 75 best players. Like if I wouldn't have gotten hurt, if I were to work this much harder, if I would have done this, if I would have done this, if I would have done this, I might've been able to crack it. To me, Kevin, the performance is important, but I'm sorry to say this. It's just basketball. It's just hockey. We're talking about human beings, the lives that you're impacting every day. That is more powerful than anything else that you did on the court. Both of you, the change that you have created in other people's lives by being okay and by being able to have a panic attack and go back to work because if Kevin and Corey could do it, I can do it. Group hug. Yeah, group hug. hug. I got it. I got it. How do we get a viral hug? Kevin, I worked for the Canadian military as a civilian for several years in a PTSD clinic. And the number of guys that said to me, guys and girls who said, my God, I wish my leg had been blown off. At least people could see what was wrong with me. And I wonder for you, you went through you, the broken hand, which you were already vulnerable. So now you have a physical injury on top of the mental health struggles. But does that resonate with you? Do you wish that you had something that you could show people for the the why of the running into the back room and having the panic attack? I don't know. That's that's I've never had that question asked actually. Very <laughs> that's a thought-provoking question. Um I, yeah, I mean I think in some ways so I'll ask it this way to make it a little easier. It's, no, I think I, okay, I have an it? answer okay. in my head. I'm sorry. No, I think we just said the sentiment, and Corey said it best, was like, I, I want, would want that. Because for me, I'm like, you know what? I've done enough work now where I'm like, okay, I'll land on my feet. And that growth mindset, like, I'll work on it. I don't have a fixed mindset. I'm, I'm, I'm going to work on it. I'm going to grow. I'm going to find ways that it's, it's, it's all going to work out in the end. Just like I'm going to continue to do what I'm doing, be a good person, and it's all going to work out in the end. And it wasn't always the case. I didn't, I didn't think like that. But I think in wanting to save as many people as possible and all of us here believing in that, I would want people to see that in everybody. Because for me, I'm just like, you know, I, I always, here's another, you know, positive, negative connotation. Like 90% of the people like about your problems are, you know, happy you have them. And the other 10% don't give a shit. <laughs> That's how I think, right? But 
you know, I would want people to to be able to see it or be able to like reach out and touch it or be able to 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 label it so they could really see it for what it is. I wouldn't wish that on anybody to 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 feel that. Though at, at any point in your life, there is going to very in all likelihood be uh, an episode or something that you're going to go through at at whatever level. But I would like people to you know have some sort of understanding because I think right now we all you know need more healing or more people that are that are empathetic to what others are going through because there's a lot of uh, a lot of I don't even know what to call it, but a lot of uh, sadness and grief. And I just think overall depression across, you know, many different sectors in life right now. Diane, we covered a lot of ground with Kevin. I've had my experiences with panic. So what exactly is a panic attack? I know there's different levels, there's different kinds. What is it for you? So a panic attack is awful. It's an intense surge of anxiety, of fear, of discomfort. It comes on suddenly, it peaks in a matter of moments, and then it slowly settles or fades. They can come on differently for different people. They can appear different for every individual, but they're often associated with physical symptoms. And you know this, Corey, there's sweating, shaking, shortness of breath. People can have chest pain, dizziness, nausea. But they also come with emotional symptoms, and those are incredibly common and also incredibly similar for each individual. I'm going crazy. I've got to escape. I'm having a heart attack or a stroke. They feel like they're having, they're dying instead of having a panic attack. And then a lot of times they'll go to an emergency room and the, the doctors will hook them up to an EKG and all that to make sure their heart's okay. And then they'll just send them home without really diagnosing the problem, which is a panic attack. I think emergency departments have actually become really good at diagnosing panic attacks because they happen very commonly. And because they come with all these physical symptoms, chest pain, sweating, sometimes even pain down your arm, and you feel like you're dying, you're having a heart attack, of course you're going to go to the emergency department. And I think people often feel really embarrassed. You know, I... I thought this was real. Well, it is real. It's just it's caused by anxiety. So I I think most panic attacks are diagnosed in an emergency department, but they do the right thing. They make sure someone isn't having a heart attack or a stroke. It's it's really an awful experience. So for someone like Kevin, who was in the middle of a game, I always thought that exercise would help with that, but I never really thought that it could happen during the middle of a game. And for him... I guess I don't understand because your body would be warmed up and exercise is usually a, a something you can use to help mental health. How and why possibly would that have happened during that game for Kevin? Well, remember we talked about how some mental illnesses are more genetic than others and none are 100% genetic. So there, there are genetic reasons probably why Kevin has struggled with mental illness because it runs in his family. But there's other important aspects of why people struggle with mental illness. There's just your personality, your temperament, how you handle stress. And then there's also what's going on in your life, your social cir- circumstances. It sounded like Kevin was under an awful lot of pressure. He had already had some struggles with his mental health. And this was just the straw that broke the camel's back that provoked that panic attack at that time. You can't 
really exercise your way out of a panic attack. It can happen out of the blue for no reason. It can happen because you're really under a lot of stress. It can happen at any time, really. And and it's it's difficult to say why it happened exactly at that time, but it clearly did. And then you know, it, it makes it worse because most people, when they're having a panic attack, they're on their own or maybe your family's around. But to do it in front of thousands of people, man, that was tough. So what's the best way to treat a panic attack when it does happen? What should a person do? I think it's first important to recognize that panic attacks don't necessarily mean that someone has a mental illness. As I said, 30% of panic attacks can be provoked in people that are just under a lot of stress, and that doesn't mean they have a mental illness. But they can also happen if someone's struggling with depression or another mental illness, and then some people have a diagnosis of panic disorder. So if you're experiencing repeated panic attacks, it's best to go and see someone and ask for help. Ask uh, your family doctor, a nurse practitioner, tell them what's happening. They can tell you, first of all, yep, that's a panic attack, which can be a relief to some people, and then determine how severe it is and what kind of treatment might be helpful. Uh, they always pass. I always have to remind myself, this is going to pass. It's not always going to be like that. Sometimes I have to just, I guess the word would be hunker down and just let it go. Is that another way to be able to deal with panic attacks? The sad thing, Corey, is that you've had enough of them that you know that. So when people first have a panic attack, they're like, what the hell is happening to me? I'm dying. I'm losing my mind. I'm going crazy. It's terrifying. You've had a few. So you know what to do and you're able to weather it when it's not horrible. But sometimes, as you know, if you have a really bad panic attack, It's hard to talk to yourself during those times, but having the people around you understand that you have panic attacks can help. The most important thing to be able to do at that time is to actually breathe. It's really hard to have a panic attack when you're breathing. People don't realize that they hold their breath. hold their breath, yep. But if you can make yourself breathe, and I don't mean slow, too slow, just slowing down because if you breathe too slowly, you're Pass also going to make it worse. <laughs> but just slowing down your breathing and then trying to talk to yourself. But when your whole body is saying you're having a heart attack, you're dying, you're going crazy, it's hard It's hard to fight back. Honestly, hearing Kevin talk made me think about my own issues. And so I asked him a question that continues to bother me to this day. Why can't people like Kevin and I just grasp it like forgive ourselves we've done so many wonderful things like and kevin maybe you feel i I just feel like i haven't done enough i feel like all the time i haven't done enough i haven't helped enough people i haven't right and it's like okay what can i do next well where are you on that journey kevin yeah i think we're more concerned likely with tomorrow's trials than yesterday's triumphs i mean that's just I, i think the way our brains are wired um and no, I'm 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 the same way. I I mean, I watched the Naomi Naomi, excuse me, Osaka documentary, and I can I remember she asked her parents, and she's what 23, 24 years old. She's like, "Did you do you think at this point in my life that I would have done more?" And I'm like, I I hear her say it, yeah. and I accept it. I hear myself say it, and I say, "No, I haven't done it. I haven't done enough. I haven't done anything. I've screwed up. I you know, there's all these problems." But I'm like, with her, I'm like. Are you kidding me? Like, you're this global phenomenon and superstar, and you've won, like, 
you change the game of tennis, you beat Serena, you're the next superstar, you have this unbelievable background. And like, for me, I'm like, no, it's completely different. And Kevin, I'm looking at you thinking the same damn thing. Like, I'm like, I'm looking at all of you going, you're crazy. (laughs) It's so that's that internal dialogue, right, Dan? Uh, Kevin, can you tell us about all your foundations, everything, and, and we'll wrap this up? Yeah. Especially after we talked about, you know, all the great things we aren't doing but, or feel like we're not doing. But yes, yeah, please, no, the Kevin Love Fund. I'm, I'm super proud of it. Um, in 2018, September 19th, we started the Kevin Love Fund to, you know, just try and help everybody with their physical and, and emotional well-being. We want to provide tools. I mentioned you know, in us talking about this, the, the the stigma around everything, we want to develop more tools, more research. We've worked with a number of phenomenal people, but I think the, the biggest thing we have going now, it's so special and I've talked about it, is the education curriculum and, you know, modeling vulnerability and social emotional learning and having... Uh, kids at 15 and 16 years old doing that. So that that program is for 15 and 16 year olds. We've had, you know, in the thousands now of students that have have gone through the process, um, you know, hundreds of, of, of teachers as well. And I told you earlier, it's affected them in such a positive way, which we didn't or I guess I didn't realize would would be the case is, is just having the 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 authority figure and, and the teacher and somebody older, some, somebody that the kids look up to model that vulnerability and share themselves and share a struggle that, that they have had. And just being somebody that is a pillar within their life, because we all have teachers like that. That has had the kids open up in such a significant way to where the next kid steps forward, the next kid steps forward. And I got to see that for the first time with my team at the Kevin Love Fund. And it was emotional. I mean, it was it was really, really impactful to see. So I think in just uh, rolling that out, uh, getting that to as many schools as we can throughout the country, a lot of people accepting doing it. I think it, it can really make a change in, in people's lives. And we want to get this thing to all the schools across the country if we can, because we need to not only have that early intervention, but we need to teach kids what it means to, to, to be vulnerable you know, to share in empathy and just have a lot of gratitude, you know, throughout their lives for all the good things that are around. One of the, uh, this is, this is the time when most mental illnesses, serious mental illnesses start or when it started for you and for Corey. And so what an incredible thing you're doing at, at a critical age. I'm, I'm really grateful for you, Kevin, for your time today, for sharing so openly and for what you're doing to try to create change. Well Thank you, guys. Appreciate it.